Thanks for listening to the Dr. Drew Podcast on Podcast One. Well, that one mineral I keep telling you about, it's magnesium, the body's master mineral, powerful in over 300 reactions. Uh, even digestion's influence. Big problems, though. Magnesium has largely been missing from the U.S. soil since the 1950s, which explains why it's estimated up to 80% of the population may be deficient. And I remember when I was a resident, I keep telling you, I had a fellow who pounded into my head that magnesium was the most important element. And most supplements contain only one or two forms, when in reality there are seven that your body could benefit from. I'm excited, as always, to tell you about the new magnesium product, uh, Magnesium Breakthrough, the ultimate magnesium supplement, easily the best out there. And it's back in stock. Magnesium Breakthrough has been selling faster than the company who makes it. Buy optimizers can keep up with. They've already sold out a few times, and due to supply shortages with everything going on in the world, it could sell out again very quickly. The Dr. Drew team was able to arrange some stock to be set aside just for our audience, and it is the best deal available on this product. With volume discounts combined with our custom 10% coupon code, that's Dr. Drew 10, you can save up to 40% off select packages of Magnesium Breakthrough. Amazing value. And I promise this deal is only available on this specific website, magbreakthrough.com slash Drew. You've got to go to magbreakthrough.com slash DRW. You will not find the deal on Amazon or even the company's own website. It is exclusively for our podcast listeners and for a limited time while supplies last. They've also revamped their checkout process. It is much easier. Magnesium Breakthrough, the most effective magnesium supplement I've ever found. Say goodbye to having to buy multiple bottles of magnesium to get the complete dose. Go to Mag Breakthrough, M-A-G-B-R-E-A-K-T-H-R-O-U-G-H, magbreakthrough.com slash Drew, and use coupon code DRDREW10, Dr. Drew10, to save up to 40% off select packages to get the most full-spectrum and effective magnesium product ever. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Dr. Drew Podcast. Uh, you know, we appreciate your support of those people who support us so we can keep this thing going, keep Mr. Perola happy. And don't forget all the goings on at drdrew.com. We've got uh, the stream there. We were broadcasting very regularly we have a call-in show on sunday and then uh, don't forget after dark and uh, me and adam of course uh, most days our guest today is andrew newberg uh latest book is the rabbi's brain mystics moderns and the science of jewish thinking it's available now neurotheology is what we're talking about um you can follow dr newberg at, at andrew newberg n-e-w-b-e-r-g.com and twitter at Andrew Newberg and Dr. Newberg, you came highly recommended by Dr. Dan Amon, who said you must speak with him. So we uh, are. Well, he's a terrific guy, and I would have told you the same thing in reverse. So <laughs> here we are. It's a three-way again. So, so Tom, first, let's start with the book. What, what, what did you learn writing this book? What prompted you to write the book, and what is in there? Well, you know, I've been studying the relationship between spirituality and the brain for many, many years, and um, and and that has kind of developed into this field of neurotheology. Uh, you know, what, uh, how we look at and understand the, the relationship, the link between the human brain and our religious and spiritual selves. Um, part of why I got into the discussion about Judaism was the idea that, I'm sorry. That's all good. We love dogs on podcasts, especially during the, during the quarantine. Everyone does it. Everyone's got it. I know, I know. Um, so uh, part of, and, and part of the reason why I got into re- talking about the rabbi's brain is the idea that, um, you know, we can really start to think about neurotheology from the perspective of different traditions. And of course, my own background is, is Judaism. Uh, I was raised in a Reformed Jewish household, got bar mitzvahed. 
And so uh, it just seemed like a very natural kind of approach to be able to start with that. Uh, but ultimately, you know, neurotheology is something that is really for every type of tradition. And so hopefully this is really just the start of something. It's the ability for us to look at uh, Christianity and its denominations, uh, Islam, Hinduism, Buddhism, you know, all the traditions from this perspective to see what we can learn, what we can understand in terms of how the brain helps us to be relig religious and spiritual. And so, you know, this, this whole area of uh, neurobiology, anthropology, spirituality, this stuff really, that's how, that's how I found Jordan Peterson. I'm, I'm interested in people that combine anthropology and psychology and then ask the question, why do our brains do that? Right. And, then, and then is there some transcendent meaning? That's a whole other question. But, uh, you know, why, are, why did the human brains do that? And, right. and, and it gives me an absolute intense fascination. So how do you, what's your posture as somebody that evaluates these things? Are you coming from the neuroscience? Are you coming from multiple different perspectives? Where, where are you evaluating this from? Well, certainly, you know, I, I do feel like neurotheology as a, as a field and as, based on the work that I'm trying to do is, is something that is very multidimensional uh, and, uh, and really does kind of come at things from a variety of different perspectives. I, I suppose, you know, because my background is neuroimaging, um, there's certainly that. But, uh, you know, as, as you mentioned uh, just a moment ago, you know, part of what excites me uh, in this in terms of all of the information that we can get at from this perspective is that it ranges from the very practical to the very esoteric. So, you know, on a very practical level, we can ask questions about, well, you know, if somebody uh, is religious, um, is that protective? Does it protect them from depression? Does it protect them from substance abuse? Obviously, a big area that I know you've been involved in for many, many years. Mm -hmm. uh, and there's a lot of evidence to support that. And certainly, you know, uh, programs like Alcoholics Anonymous, uh, which really invokes a spiritual concept, uh, has also been very effective for helping people with alcoholism. So, you know, there, there's that very practical piece. Yeah, there, I will interrupt uh, you. Wait, stay with yeah, sure, go ahead. On a practical piece for a second. Is there something about spirituality that changes the brain in such a way that you can look at the imaging and say, oh, that's why they're regulating better or that's why the alcoholic isn't so... Uh, what changed in their brain that might help them regulate their substance use? Well, there, there are a variety of changes that occur. Um, now, it does depend a little bit on what the practice is and what the person is doing. So, for example, um, you know, when we study a practice like prayer, uh, we find that that, haps, that happens to increase the activity in their frontal lobe. Uh, we've actually done some studies that have looked at certain neurotransmitters and have found that a spiritual retreat program, you know, very intensive retreat program, alters the amount of dopamine in their brain. And these are the frontal lobes help to regulate our emotional responses. So when you're talking about, you know, having an addiction, uh, being anxious, uh, having depression, if your frontal lobes are working better because you are engaged in a spiritual practice or, or various religious and spiritual beliefs, then that's going to help you psychologically. And similarly, uh, you know, if you're really immersed in this, then it changes your the serotonin levels, the dopamine levels in the brain, much like the drugs that people would take as an antidepressant uh, or a drug that might help them uh, to calm down. And so we really see this kind of an impact of these practices uh, on a lot of different levels. And it also, it changes, you know, the, another important set of structures is the limbic system, the emotional centers of the brain. And these practices help to calm those down so that people aren't quite as reactive. Uh, and, you know, when, when you think about what religions do, I mean, part of the thing is there are a lot of ingredients Right. I mean, they're, they're, they're the practices that we we're just talking about, but there's the beliefs, there's the comfort that they get, there's the social support that they get. 
So there's a lot of different elements that are very contributory to helping people when they engage their religious or spiritual selves. I'm going I'm to keep drilling on the alcoholic for a second because sure. they, they will often talk about these moments of change where they feel like something stepped in from the outside and, and they're, they're different. It's like there's a switch, a change. And I will tell you, and they look very carefully at these folks, they usually are preceded by some sort of experience of novelty in a relationship. Like as though they are seeing them, they, they, they can see themselves with a new pair of glasses and that moment causes a, what they will call you, as tell you as a spiritual shift. Does that fit with the bio, what you're observing? Absolutely. Uh, you know, one of the other books that we wrote uh, very recently was called How Enlightenment Changes Your Brain. And we talk all about those very momentary experiences. And obviously they can be deeply spiritual. Somebody truly hits enlightenment and, and kind of, you know, understands the universe in some kind of metaphysical way. Um, but they can have that more practical nature as people just, you know, it's those moments where there's this dramatic shift in the brain uh, and suddenly everything that they thought before changes. And part of what we think the frontal lobe is also becomes part of that. In fact, interestingly, um, when people meditate or pray, their frontal lobes tend to go up. But when people have these experiences, their frontal lobes go down and the frontal lobe, uh, you know, is normally involved in kind of helping us to be ourselves, uh, the egocentric self, the, what controls everything for us. And when that shuts, when that drops, when people have these enlightenment kinds of these aha moments, um, suddenly everything that they ever knew, all the ways in which they thought about themselves kind of get thrown up in the air and completely rearranged. And so, uh, you know, it is a very dramatic thing. Usually there's some trigger. Sometimes it can be the, the you know, the proverbial hitting rock bottom. Yeah. Uh, sometimes it can be something that, you know, they, they, you know, they just have a different perception in a new way that they never had before. Uh, right. so, so they can be very spontaneous, but, uh, it, they dramatically change the brain. And, uh, you know, what, what our evidence shows from studying people who have had these kinds of experiences is it changes the way they think about their lives, their relationships, their jobs. I mean, everything is changed very dramatically through this moment. And, you know, from a brain perspective, this is quite remarkable. I mean, that's yeah. not typically how we think of the brain working right. and yet it does. And, and it raises a, an interesting practical brain question, which is you know, what were these circuits always there and people just couldn't access them before. And now they suddenly do, or did the brain literally just get completely rewired and now they're able to think and, and do things in a completely different way. The, the, I would guess the wiring is less likely given that I, I haven't worked with people's brains for a long time. The wiring issue seems to take forever. <laughs> it's like you got to do things a lot for the wiring to kick in. Well, and that's why these, these enlightenment kinds of experiences are so remarkable because yeah. it really does, you know, that, that is the way we normally think about things, taking time, working with people, going through things. And then suddenly in an instant, it just changes everything. And, and we don't really understand that fully, but uh, that's part of, you know, to me, an exciting area of neurotheology is to look at that and try to understand that and capture that. Isn't there an upregulation of right posterior parietal or something at the same time? Does, is that, am I right about that? Is that, or is there well, the parietal lobe is also very involved and, you know, goes back to even one of your earlier questions about, you know, what is it that sort of turns up when people are being spiritual? So um, the parietal lobe is an area I've been very focused on uh, over the years. Uh, it's an area of our brain that normally uh, helps us to create our spatial representation of ourself, how our self relates to the world. And what we have found actually is that typically when you have these very profound experiences that the parietal lobe actually tends to go down, it tends to shut mm -hmm. down and which I think makes a lot of sense. So if it normally turns on to help you create your sense of self, 
when it shuts down, you kind of lose that sense of self and you lose the ability to see things spatially and distinguish yourself from the other. And so uh, it's associated with those experiences that people describe the, the, the famous ones of the one, you know, being one with everything, being one with God, right. uh, you know, the loss of the self and, uh, and, and that sense that something is kind of taking over the brain. And so um, uh, that tends to be very involved in these kinds of experiences. And that's part of how, why we think they become such an intense, powerful experience for the person who's having it. Yeah, uh, I talked to Antonio Damasio once, and he he was expressing that he felt that area was much more involved in the self than we knew, and it was and it, for a while it was just called the what was it called like the transition track or something. It was just sort of nothing. People did not pay much attention to it for many decades. Right, right. Well, and you know, one of the you know, there's very interesting different lines of evidence about that. So we have the brain scans. I have a brain scan of somebody in deep prayer and feeling connected with God and their parietal lobe, you know, activity is low. But there's been some interesting studies of people who have uh, injuries to the brain or have brain tumors. And when people have tumors and, and injuries in that parietal lobe, it is that sense of self and that, that actually the experience of being able to transcend the self, which is much more common as opposed to if they had the injury in the frontal lobe or in, in some other area. But also, you know, going back to one of your first questions about the parts of your brain, in my work, I have, it, there isn't just one spiritual part of the brain. It really involves so many different aspects, which has a lot to do with just the complexity of the experiences. There's, co there's cognitive processes, emotional processes processes, things that people experience, there's behavioral changes. So, you know, it really makes sense that there would be lots of different parts of the brain that are part of these experiences. I'm guessing the rabbi's brain includes big, a lot of function in the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex. Absolutely. Well, you know, and, and, and kind of the funny part uh, was that uh, while I, my background is Judaism, um, you know, I'm, I'm not a, a, a very, uh, active, uh, you know, practice you're, you're, like you're, you're ish. Yeah, I'm right. Exactly. And, uh, and my co-author, uh, David Halpern, who is, was a medical student at the time and now a resident in psychiatry and, uh, and also by training an Orthodox rabbi. So we did a little experiment where we went into the brain scanner. We went into the MRI scanner and we sang the Shema, which for, you know, for the reader or for the listeners who, who don't know, I mean, this is kind of the fundamental prayer of Judaism that es establishes God as one. And, uh, you know, it's said at every, every event and every um, service. And when he did it, uh, it was very interesting because parts of his frontal lobe went up. His parts of it went on, on the uh, right side, his prefrontal cortex went up because he was focusing on it. But mm -hmm. his left side went down because it felt like it was something that also was kind of happening to him. So it was a very intriguing combination. Unfortunately, when I did it, not a whole lot happened, which I guess <laughs> makes some sense uh, based on my, my own background. Is, is there other issues of lateralization that you find intriguing? We, we have thought about that. You know, one of the things that was very interesting early on was that we noticed that when people uh, are ex expert practitioners of meditation or, you know, deeply spiritual religious people who've been doing, you know, like nuns who have been praying for, you know, 50 years, um, that kind of thing. Uh, we noticed that another structure uh, called the thalamus, a real central structure in the brain, was asymmetric. And oftentimes, uh, the right side was a bit more active than the left. And part of what we think might be going on, you know, the thalamus is involved in all of our sensory information and helping different parts of our brain communicate with each other. So we don't know exactly what that means, but it was intriguing to us that there was this asymmetry in it. Uh, when this is such a, a, an important structure and just how we sort of 
create our, our view of the world and our, create our views of our, ourselves. Some people have even argued that the thalamus is the seat of consciousness, um, that to have that kind of an asymmetry might be quite intriguing. But, um, you know, I, I think also ultimately in terms of things like the laterality of the brain, it may depend a lot on what people are doing. And so if people are engaged in music and, and you know, a lot of free flowing stuff, maybe a little bit more on the right side, if they're doing a lot of analytic, you know, in Judaism, obviously there's a lot of, you know, analysis of the Torah and, and thinking about things. And that's more of a left-sided phenomenon. That's a little simplistic, but you, you know, yeah. for the most part. Yeah. Um, so, so I, I think that there are going to be more uh, asymmetries that we see depending on the circumstances. I have so many questions. So, so, the so do I. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm imagining you went searching for the experience of God early in this whole process. For me personally. I just imagine it just seems like that's a natural question early on. What did you find? Well, well, you know, for me personally, uh, you know, part of why I got into all of this, um, you know, it really does kind of go back to um, uh, what to me was kind of the fundamental question, which is how do we understand reality? Because obviously there are people who adamantly believe that God exists. There's people who adamantly believe God doesn't exist. And I kind of thought, well, how can we all be looking at the same world and coming away with these different perspectives? And so this whole approach of kind of combining the best, hopefully, of what we can look at from a scientific perspective and using neuroimaging to study the brain, which is helping to give us that perspective of reality, uh, as well as kind of contemplating these questions and thinking about them. And uh, and so for me, it is uh, very much a kind of combined spiritual and um and scientific journey. And, 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 and part of what happens, I talk about this a little bit in um, how enlightenment changes your brain, that right before I went into medical school, I started to really kind of focus on these questions. And, and I, had, uh, I had this experience that I usually referred to as infinite doubt, um, where to me, I just felt that there was like nothing I could ever know, for sure, um, as I went through this process. And when I said this to some of my colleagues, they said, well, that must have been like the worst experience ever because here you're trying to find an answer and you find, you'll never find an answer. And I thought what was weird about it was that it was actually, it was the most comforting kind of experience that I had ever had. It was something that really kind of changed me in my own path of thinking about these questions and, uh, and also gave me sort of the freedom to continue to explore it and to know that that could be a fundamental part of my life, but not create sort of the angst and the the, the, the problems in my own mind, um, you know, it was, it, to me, it has become this wonderful exploration of this question and a challenge. And uh, so, you know, I, I don't know if I would say I found God, uh, but I have found experiences that certainly uh, are similar to people who describe that kind of an experience. And, um, and, and, and this is part of why I still do this, you know, what, what exactly is God, you know, how do people think about God? And that's, Another book that we wrote called How God Changes Your Brain and thinking about how people you know, think about all these ideas and, and what does God actually mean to people? How do people identify that? And, and so the question is, was that, that fundamental question that you got uh, overwhelmed by, how can I ever know anything? So yes, basically. Sort of a Cartesian question, right? It was, it was exactly. It was, it, I, I kind of went through this process of saying, you know, uh, if I'm not sure about things, I'll just kind of say for the moment, I'm going to hold off. I'm going to sort of put it into that realm of doubt very much like Descartes did. Um, and he's always been a big, you know, I've always been a big fan of his. And, uh, but, but yeah, I mean, it ultimately got to this point where uh, I kind of felt like um, there was nothing. It, it was just this doubt of doubt of doubt. And uh, it was, you know, it was, it was an, it was an unbelievable experience for me. And, you know, there was this, 
feeling of oneness. I mean, everything was part of this. Um, there was certainly no se sense of self of my own self. Um, and so, you know, then when I start hearing about what other people's experiences are, um, you know, really some of the parallels to me are, are, are very exciting and, and, and helps me to understand some of my own experiences too. Be careful if you ever start looking at quantum physics. Because <laughs> I was a chemistry major and I took quantum physics. Because we are just one giant wave. We are emergent properties from a giant wave equation. That's it. <laughs> exactly. Well, and, and that's part of what I've kind of experienced too. You know, you, you get kind of caught up in just kind of the rhythms of the universe. And uh, it, it's quite fascinating. It, it is fascinating. We have, a, we, have, we have a lot to learn, that's for sure. So a friend of mine, I just want to give a little plug, uh, just just put out a new uh, Netflix series called The Midnight Gospel. Gary, can you throw that up at all? Uh, did you look at it? I did look at it. I've, I've got a few articles sort of here. Uh, one of them has a picture uh, of you, actually, So I'll th or the character you, the animated the, character the, you play. The, the, little, the little president. Yeah, there I am. There it is. That's true, right <laughs> there next to the pink fella. Um, I've only been reading about it, Drew, but I will be watching it uh, this evening. Uh, it, it's it's read watch the first one that I'm in, and then the last one with his mother. It's really quite profound. It's quite it's quite extraordinary, and uh, it, it's just an, it's an exploration of some of these main issues. And Duncan's very preoccupied about that. But his his uh, I bring him up at this point to to uh, just to ask this question, which is his. His belief is that he needs to use hallucinogens once in a while so he can get, he calls it taking an elevator up so that the elevator door is open, I get a glimpse where I need to go, and then I can find meditative practices and other things to get me back there. Right. Comment on that. Sure. Well, you know, uh, the, the use of, of psychedelic compounds um, is uh, definitely a very important aspect of, of neurotheology. Um, we've done some research looking at that. Uh, I haven't been giving the drugs to people, but we have explored the experiences that people have had. And of course, you know, there, there's some really fascinating aspects to it. First of all, from a purely brain perspective, the, the, the cool thing about it is, you know, where they go, you know, you know, that psilocybin has an effect on the serotonin system. Um, so we can study, you know, we can kind of say, okay, this is where these things go. Now we can try to look at what the experiences are about. Yeah. And when we did a, an online survey of people's most intense spiritual experiences and, and talk about this and how enlightenment changes your brain, that um, that people, uh, whether we actually did a, a, in that survey, we had several hundred people who had psychedelic induced experiences and, and other people who had the quote unquote more natural type. And uh, and basically, when you actually analyze the descriptions that people have they are remarkably similar in terms of the power, in terms of the intensity, and in terms of the spirituality that they have, they, they experience. Um, so, you know, it, on one hand, it is not a surprise to hear somebody say something like that. Now, you know, at the very beginning of, of our, our discussion, you know, we were talking a little bit about where the sort of the expanse of neurotheology, and there becomes this kind of more philosophical discussion as well. So it's not all just reductionistic, what's going on in the brain? Oh, it's just right. a brain experience. Um, right. I remind people that if you're a shaman and you take mushrooms and maybe much like, you know, your friend here uh, and you have this experience of reality, which is completely different. Um, who's to say that it didn't open up that door and allow the brain to see the world in a different kind of way 
that you can then come back and, you know, just like an enlightenment experience, for example, or other types of mystical experiences. So, um, you know, just because, you know, we in kind of the Western world sort of view that as a bit more artificial, uh, doesn't inherently make it so, you know, the, the analogy that I always use, and, and it's appropriate because I'm, I'm looking at you too, we both are wearing glasses. And so when I wake up in the morning, it's a blurry world. I put my glasses on, I see the world clearly. The world didn't change, but my ability to perceive it changed. So who's to say that, you know, taking psilocybin or ayahuasca or one of these other compounds that changes your perception of the world isn't like putting glasses on a brain to see the world in a completely different way. Right, right. Or another way of saying, this is, this is down to your philosophical point, is uh, just because you change the brain doesn't mean you're not actually seeing reality in a more accurate or vivid way. Exactly. Or an insight, at least an insight into reality that you wouldn't have had another way. Exactly. And, and it spills into this idea of neuroepistemology, you know, for those yeah. who really want to get into the, <laughs> the yeah. academic side of it, you know, how do, you know, again, how does our brain see that reality? I mean, ultimately, all of us are trapped within our brain trying to make some sense out of the universe. And, and do you, I, this is just a personal question, because I've been sort of fascinated with some of these, um, the, I was, I'm blanking on the, the, the group I'm thinking about, the phenomenologist. Yes. And it seems like, you know, some of these guys in and around uh, since Hegel and in, all the way into Heidegger really were trying to ex- explain the experience of what was going on, right? That's right. And, they, and they, it, it's when you really get down to it, it gets very Eastern when they start going into the deeper and deeper sort of analysis. And you end up just saying, you know, time is a perception of something that has something that does something. <laughs> you know, they can't right. really, it's ineffable. And then that's kind of the way the brain is, right? Absolutely. And, and, you know, going back to even my own personal journey, I mean, I kind of started out with this very scientific, okay, I'm going to study the brain. And if I learn about what the brain is, I'll learn about how we experience reality and kind of, you know, hit a wall with that eventually and, and started to look at other perspectives and then came across phenomenology and Buddhism and Hinduism. And it's not that they're necessarily, you know, right or, you know, better or worse, but a whole other perspective that, that, you know, comes into the, into view here that I think we have to take very seriously. And, and part of what to me neurotheology does is it says, you know, we can, we can talk about phenomenology, we can talk about our experiences, we can talk about reality, and we can also talk about the brain. And we can think about how all of that kind of swirls around to give us, you know, some sense of who we are. Uh, but, uh, you know, to me, part of the, the real uh, focal point of what this whole field is, is I, I refer to it as a passion for inquiry that that we always have to keep asking the questions, you know, that there's, we, we can't just say, okay, well, just because we see the temporal lobe light up, we know yeah. what that experience is. It, right, right. It's but, very but complicated. Like, but it's, it's anchoring, though. The biology is very yes. anchoring. That's what I like about it. Exactly, exactly. It, it gives you a place to go if you, if you, so you don't drift too far. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. But, you know, I mean, you know, even, again, you know, even thinking about, you know, we're talking about God, um, you know, uh, we, we've done a lot of, you know, what I think are very interesting studies to look at how do we perceive God? You know, um, what do we think about when we think about God? So you can, you know, beyond the, what it says in the Bible or you know, the Quran or whatever, you know, what do people really think? And that's part of what this is all about too. We do a lot of research where we just ask the reg, you know, the everyday person, Tell us what you think. What do you believe? How do you believe it? What is, what's your experience? I don't want to know what, you know, Buddha said or, or oh. Moses said. I mean, I do want to know that too, but yeah. I want to know what each person feels. And, and I think that that's almost as fundamentally important as, as, as reading the great scholars and the sacred texts. 
religious ritual fascinates me too, because of something like Passover to me is a horrible traumatic event that they never <laughs> wanted to forget. So rather than playing a game of telephone and relying on human memory, which would transition it all the way to dragons and who knows what, we do, we actually repeat the behavior every year of those experiences. We right. do a traumatic reenactment. It was so traumatizing. We've reenacted it for 3,000 years. That is crazy. <laughs> right. Well, you know, I mean, rituals are fundamental to human beings and certainly fundamental to uh, religion. I, 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 think, I think they're sort of off. One piece is offloaded memory. It's just a way of offloading a memory, make sure it doesn't change over time. Well, absolutely. I mean, you know, going back to what we were talking about earlier about how the brain does work. I mean, while people do have those, you know, moments to change everything, the way it usually works is through repetition. I mean, that's how we grow up. We learn one plus one equals two, one plus one equals two, and then we move on to one plus two equals, you know, and, and we keep yeah. going. And um, the, I mean, this is why rituals are so powerful because what they, they, they work, they operate on multiple levels through repetition and rhythm. And so you mentioned Passover. I mean, Passover is loaded with, you know, not only is it, is it a ritual, but it's loaded with rituals and, you know, the different things that we do and, and taking the drink, the glasses of wine or it's saying certain prayers. Reenactments, exactly what happens. That's right. That's it, right. It never changes. It never changes. And, and so the neural connections that support the fundamental concepts of that, yeah. uh, which are, you know, ultimately supposed to be what makes you Jewish, um, it, it gets ingrained in your brain from when you're, you know, two or three years old and you're being forced to ask, you know, do the four questions. Um, and, you know, then you do it over your lifetime and then it's over generations and then it's over, you know, millennia. Um, so it, you know, part of what ritual rituals do some very interesting things. I mean, clearly, as you said, there's the memory part and, yeah. and because, you know, especially when there's these, you know, very intense emotional responses, um, this is activating the limbic system, which is involved in our emotions, but also, you know, writes everything into our memory. And, and there's a good reason for that. We want to remember things that are emotionally important. Yes. Um, but also there's the binding part. Um, and so, you know, we talked about the parietal lobe a little while ago about decreasing the parietal lobe. Well, part of how that happens in the brain is through rhythmic activity. The more you keep going back into these rhythms, it starts driving these different parts of the brain, the frontal lobes turn on and so forth. And then over time, as you focus on the, the, the target, the ritual, then the parietal lobes actually start to quiet down and you feel more and more connected to the ritual. You feel more and more connected to the people you know, around you, your family maybe, and maybe even more and more connected to the group, you know, all Jews or all Muslims or whatever, and then more connected to God. So uh, it, rituals are an incredibly powerful mechanism that uh, has arisen in human beings um, over time and uh, and really is involved in helping change, as you said, the memories, uh, as well as to bind us to those basic concepts. When you say spiritual, can you define that? <laughs> you know, um, one of the first things I talk about in neurotheology is what are our definitions? And um, so, you know, spiritual and religiousness uh, are two very similar and overlapping concepts, and they are difficult to define. So I usually challenge, I usually throw the question back at them, but well, I'll do my best. I, that's why, because people have kind of their own thing. But you, I noticed you mentioned the connectedness amongst humans. Most people will conclude some aspect of a shared experience with others. Exactly. I mean, I, I think I think the most basic description of spiritual is something that connects us to um, something beyond the self, and mm -hmm. whether that is a group, uh, you know, the universe, God um, could have different different aspects, but usually it's that sense of feeling 
connected to something greater than the self. And of course, sometimes it can be very physical. You know, you can have some, you know, great astronomers who just feel connected to the universe in a kind of spiritual way, but there's nothing supernatural there um, to people who really do feel that it has this supernatural element. Um, but, you know, there, there's a lot of overlap with religiousness. And of course, um, you, know, you know, the majority of people will say I'm religious and spiritual, but there are certainly a growing number of people who say I'm spiritual and not religious. They don't really buy into a given tradition anymore, but they are trying to find something spiritual, that connection, uh, whether that's through being in nature, uh, cre being creative, doing yoga, doing meditation, whatever it is that feels to get them more grounded, more connected to the world, uh, more connected to their kind of fundamental self. Uh, I noticed you've left out a particular region that I've been obsessed with lately, uh, Bud Craig's work, particularly in the insular cortex. Yeah. Um, what's going on there? Well, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, the insula is, is you know, it's that uh, area for, for, for the listeners who don't know um, that kind of sits between the limbic system and the cortex, particularly the temporal lobe. And uh, we do think that that is uh, a very important area as well, because it does help us to kind of perceive the emotions that we have, understand them, figure out how to feel enact our them. Yeah. Feel our, feel our feelings. I'm going to think of it. Exactly. And so, uh, you know, this is part of what we see, you know, as, as this whole field of neurotheology has developed over time, you know, it started out very basic, you know, we're just talking about the frontal lobes and the temporal, lobe, you know, the parietal lobe. And, <laughs> and, and now we keep adding more. And then the th we, you know, we never thought about the thalamus and then we saw the asymmetries in the thalamus. And then we didn't know much about the insula and, now suddenly there's the insula to, to really think about. And, you know, I'll tell you, uh, um, we did a very interesting study. It had nothing to do with religion and spirituality, but it had to do with traumatic memories. And uh, one of the areas of the brain that really got involved in this process was the cerebellum, which most of which is the very back uh, bottom part of the brain. And most I, of us kind of went through medical school thinking, oh, it's involved in just, you know, coordination and that's it. Yeah. Looks like it's involved in coordinating your emotional processes yeah. as well. Yeah, I, yeah, I just I just have recently come to terms with that. I, it's mostly the vermis too, isn't it? It's right in the middle. Yeah, yeah, very yeah. much so. Very so the, much so. Of the lobes may actually be the balance areas, but the vermis is involved in other kinds of negotiations, I guess. Yeah, yeah. So you know, again, we just keep adding uh, more and more areas, and uh, you know, I, I'm in a department of integrative medicine, and so you know, what what we really have kind of come to understand is again, there's not one part of the brain, it may be almost the entire brain, depending on, you know, what a person is doing and how they're doing it and how they, you know, become, you know, integrated with that experience. And then it all connects to the body. And we were talking about rituals. I mean, part of how the rituals have an impact on us is through what's going on in the body. Um, the autonomic nervous system that regulates your heart rate and your blood pressure. And you mentioned Damasio earlier, you know, talked a lot about how the things that we think and feel ultimately come to us from the bottom up instead of the yep. top down. And, yep. uh, and that's a whole other piece of this, you know, uh, the, the rituals that involve the body dancing music versus the practice, you know, the, the cognitive ones that kind of are driven from the meditative and the prayer practices that come a little bit more top down. So Bud Craig has a lot of this information coming through the spinal thalamic crack up into the insula. But then um, Steve Porges, something that also we weren't taught in medical school was the vagus nerve is 80% afferent. So 80% of the vagus nerve is information coming out of the viscera into the, again, the, the, the more midbrainy type structures, the, the, the nuclei from which the vagus emerges. Yeah. Well, no, ab absolutely. And, and again, I mean, you know, part of what we're, 
uh, actually some of our earliest work was really looking at these kind of autonomic nervous system activity levels, uh, what was going on in the vagus nerve, um, you know, the calming areas of the brain, the, the arousing areas of, of the brain and body, I should say. Um, and so, you know, that also uh, is a very important part of all of this. And, and it goes back to, you know, what we we're talking about at the very beginning about how this, these kind of beliefs and practices may ultimately be quite useful for people who have different psychological issues that they're dealing with, whether it's substance abuse or depression or anxiety, um, as ways of trying to sort of turn, change the way the brain and the body are responding so that we can help people to, to get past those uh, various issues and problems. Now you're talking about religious practice and, and spirituality and um, and even prayer and meditation, that kind of thing. But let, let's flip over to hallucinogens again. Okay, sure. And, and, and talk about things like ayahuasca and ibogaine and, and therapeutic implications of, of these same, same plants that are causing these spiritual experiences may have some other therapeutic value as well, correct? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and this is a very big, uh, you know, area which uh, are, is emerging out of this. Um, you know, people are starting to do some really good research looking at the impact of uh, different uh, drugs like psilocybin and ayahuasca and helping people with depression, anxiety, post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, you know, the initial data is, is, is fairly impressive, um, you know, uh, from what I can tell. And, uh, you know, we, we certainly have a long way to go before it becomes kind of the mainstream. But, um, but the idea that, uh, you know, taking these drugs in a, in a one or two times that induces a kind of, you know, almost mystical like experience or very intense spiritual experience uh, that, again, almost kind of, you know, like an enlightenment experience seems to kind of rewire the person's brain in a way that, uh, that there aren't a lot of other ways of doing that. It, it's, it's quite fascinating how it seems to be able to do that. And, and uh, you know, I certainly, you know, I'm, I'm eager to see what the, the rest of the research uh, yeah. shows. I, I'm, I'm, I'm convinced that end of life dread is very effectively treated with either mushrooms or LSD, but I'm not sure the risk reward, if it's not end of life, I'm not sure. Not, not, number one. And number two, people, the addicts are using ayahuasca like crazy. Yeah. Uh, Dan Amon and I are thinking about scanning people and just documenting what happens. And, and I can tell you clinically what I've seen over and over again is they usually stop using uh, and usually are talking about this extraordinary experience if they have one, which is only not necessarily everybody, maybe like 60 percent, uh, if that and uh, and that they don't want to use anymore. And it's been so life changing. And they talk about it, talk about it, talk about it. Then at about three months, they stop talking about it. And then at six months, they start using again. <laughs> that's sort of that's sort of been my experience. Now, yeah. not everybody. I've seen one case that stayed sober, uh, and of course, not every addict is the same kind of addict. So it's kind of interesting, right? Uh, have you heard or seen anything different than that? I, you know, I, I haven't seen them, you know, being used yet uh, a whole lot for for substance abuse itself. Um, you know, uh, again, I think, you know, as you kind of were raising, I, I think there certainly are the, you know, that the longstanding concerns about using those different drugs is kind of, you know, whether they are ultimately addictive in and of themselves. They're and just, whether they're, they're just dangerous. They're just dangerous. They're and just dangerous in terms I used of. To, I used to see, you know, I, I treat a lot of people in the 90s who were heavy LSD users in the 60s. Right. It was not good. There was yeah. brain damage. <laughs> and so yeah. there's potential for harm. Just we don't know what that is. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I think, you know, it, it, again, if it was something that even, you know, they showed that it, there was benefit, it would really have to be thought through in terms of what would be good. And, you know, I would imagine a lot of the people that you're talking about may have done 
done it multiple times, you know, many oh, times, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, you know, whereas if you can do it once or twice, you know, that, that may avoid some of those issues, but, but yeah, I mean, there is always, um, you know, as, as, as you said, you know, Daniel Amon has, has really been a, a leader in trying to look at these long-term consequences on the brain from doing these different things. And, uh, I think definitely, uh, we, you know, these are things that we have to be conscious of and careful of. And, you know, I, I think the other piece to it, um, you know, when we talk about spiritual experiences, often they are, they are, they are, people have them in a context. So in a context of trying to be religious or spiritual, um, they may have people who are helping them, guiding them and so forth. And that's a very different environment within which those experiences are, are, are had as opposed to when people are doing LSD, you know, on the street, uh, at a party. Um, So so I I think that's a really, really important piece. By the way, but hidden in that same observation is, might there be therapeutic techniques within that when you use these plants, you can really help with the therapeutic outcome? You know what I mean? Right. And there's so-called shamans or whatever they call themselves out there doing stuff like that. Yeah. And, and I've talked to them uh, and, and they make sense. They're not in outer space. And right. they, they, they look at themselves as sort of helping people, I think, fundamentally come to terms with trauma. People are right. stuck, getting through stuck spots and they're there guiding them through and the plant somehow helps with that. Well, and I think that is an essential part, you know, there, and whether that is a psychotherapeutic relationship or some kind of, you know, spiritual guide type of relationship, but somebody who can effectively, uh, you know, help people through these different processes and, you know, different kinds of feelings come up and experiences come up and traumas come up and, you know, all these different things, you know, if it just kind of happens and there's no one there to kind of catch you when you fall, so to speak, then it really can turn quite bad for people. Whereas if there are, you know, if you're working with someone, especially, you know, someone who has a psychological or psychiatric background who can really kind of guide you through a process Right. Um, you know, then, you know, as you said, you know, maybe in adjunct, um, you know, uh, whether it's, uh, uh, you know, these different psychedelics or, you know, people are looking at a lot of different ways of stimulating the brain. Uh, you know, there's a yeah. transcranial That's, magnetic yeah. stimulation and, yeah. you know, all these different things that, uh, again, you know, they all do things. They all change the brain to a certain extent, yeah. but it's what we do with it and how it becomes incorporated effectively. Uh, that becomes very important. And, and and let me just say one other thing, which, you know, gets a little bit back to the neurotheology piece. Um, you know, I don't know if we're going to go in this direction, but, you know, one of the other pieces of all of this is when religion and spirituality goes wrong, you know, goes bad. And, you know, we, we talk a lot about kind of the rosy aspect of people who are religious tend to have lower rates of depression and anxiety and so forth. But there are terrorists, you know, there, there are, there are cults. I mean, there are people who, uh, and, and certainly, you know, in, I often talk about, you know, people in substance abuse um, often have very negative views about God. God's punishing them, um, you know, so why should I try and all that. Um, scrupulosity and, and uh, religiosity and they, they, it can go haywire a million different ways. Exactly. And so, you know, that, that's part of what this is about, too, I think, which is to understand when religion works for people and spiritual, you know, religion and spirituality work for people uh, when it doesn't work for people. And, and then when it doesn't, you know, are there ways of kind of reaching in and helping to bring people out? So, yeah. you know, if it's substance abuse or depression, um, while, you know, we may need to work with them on a kind of psychotherapeutic level, maybe they need to have certain medications like an antidepressant to help them. But there could be a spiritual component to a lot of these issues for people as well. And, 
and, and helping them to do that uh, and address that could be very, very important. And, and in fact, sometimes even more important. And people have been trying to develop different you know, combinations of kind of traditional like cognitive behavioral therapy, but with a, a religious or spiritual perspective that, yes. uh, that addresses that. And of course, again, you, know, you wouldn't do that in an atheist. Um, but, but for somebody who does have a, a strong religious background, it could be very helpful for people. What are you working on now? So we are working on a couple of different things. Um, you know, one is that we, we are, we uh, actually are, are looking at the rituals and the experiences that people have from those rituals. Um, so, uh, you know, if you, uh, people might remember a, a very famous book from about a hundred years ago called the varieties of religious experience oh, by William yeah. James. Of course. And so we are kind of working on updating that with all of the new huh. science and the discussion about psychedelics and all that kind of a thing. Um, we are looking at other ways of stimulating these kinds of experiences. So while I haven't specifically gotten into doing the, uh, the studies with psychedelics, um, we have been looking at things like the, the brain stimulation techniques and other kinds of experiences. And then on top of that, you know, we continue to just look at all, and we've scanned about four or 500 people doing all different kinds of practices from all different kinds of traditions. And we keep, keep looking at those kinds of experiences and trying to understand, you know, the various complexities of what rel being religious and spiritual uh, actually means for people. And, and then in the meantime, I'm still trying to find reality. So, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, um, I've had on my show a couple times, a guy named Sean Carroll, who, uh, believes he's a you know he's a famous quantum physicist and he believes that every time we observe a quantum phenomenon we split into two universes right uh, it's 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 i forget what the name of this is but it, that blows my mind so much i, I stop trying to understand things <laughs> <laughs> it's like okay that's it I, i'm out well listen okay. I, you know, I mean, neurotheology does include quantum mechanics. You know, I mean, there, there, it's still, you know, a lot of people are talking about the, the relationship between quantum mechanics and consciousness and the brain. And, you know, we don't have an answer yet. You know, we don't have a way of understanding what consciousness is and how it arises in a, you know, out of, you know, inorganic matter. Uh, you know, or, or I mean, all are you working on the difficult question also? Oh, absolutely. That's always kind of the my fundamental uh, plan, which is okay. trying to understand that. Well, let, let me propose something that, yes. that that looking at a single skull for consciousness is an error. It's it starts as a two skull phenomenon. Seeing ourselves reflected in the other is is the opportunity to have the the perspective within which to have a conscious experience. And if you notice, it's always social animals that we sort of attribute sort of something like a consciousness or an emergent consciousness. It's always that ability to connect with others, have our whatever is going on in our brain reflected back to us meaningfully. I think that's where consciousness emerges. I really do. I think looking at a single skull is a big mistake. Uh, very well might. I mean, you know, it's, and, and certainly, you know, there are some very interesting studies that have looked at how brains resonate with each other. Um, and so absolutely, you know, there, uh, to me, there, there's no limit to what we can, can try to do to try to understand these questions. But, you know, I mean, consciousness is a fascinating issue. And then, you know, when you talk about these enlightenment experiences that are altered states of consciousness and the psychedelics, which are altered states of consciousness and mystical experiences, altered state, you know, uh, so when we say it's an altered state, how does consciousness, you know, what is it? I think of those almost as altered states of being, Yeah. Which, but then beingness is that giant topic of phenomenology. <laughs> what is that? That's <laughs> so, right. 
So, well, and you know, I mean, it it does get at you know some of these really fascinating questions. I mean, you know, we always talk about look when when you're in a dream, you know, you're in a state of consciousness, and and no matter how real that dream feels, you wake up and you say that was not as real. But yeah. when people have these mystical experiences, they say no, 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 the everyday reality experience is not as real, and so. Uh, it really does, you know, it challenges science. It challenges what we can know, uh, how, you know, science is in our everyday reality. And if you're a mystic saying, well, but the everyday reality isn't quite as fundamentally real as this other reality. Um, you know, I'm not saying that that's the end all be all, but, um, but I think we have to take it seriously in terms of what that means. And again, try to understand what's going on in the brain when you have that kind of mystical experience and why it's different. What does a shift in consciousness do or look like and mean? And, and, and as you said, you know, I think a lot of the consciousness, uh, uh, what I typically say, similar to what you were talking about, you know, with uh, the relationship with another person, in many ways, it's the relationship with the world. You know, it's, it, it's this we're constantly in this rhythm of, of uh, you know, kind of this loop of our, our consciousness and the world out there and uh, uh, and how we then interpret our consciousness back at us. Um, so there, there are some incredibly fascinating and yet incredibly complex issues that uh, yeah. that lie ahead <laughs> and by free will while we're at it so well i can do free will but that'll take another uh, a whole uh, other interview another podcast <laughs> another you, podcast you com compatibilist determinist doesn't exist i well you know what I, the, my best guess at the moment is that we i think that we have free will but whenever we look for it we can never find it and I think to some degree, um, you know, it's one of those things where uh, I think it's a little bit like, like quantum mechanics. I actually use that as an analogy. Yeah. Um, not that quantum mechanics explains free will, but the whole wave particle duality, I, you know, it's like, yeah. it depends on how you look at it. When we sort of act in life, we yeah. kind of act like we have it, but the moment we try to find it, you know, it turns back into the wave again, or, you know, whatever, you know, whatever, it turns that's into something great. else. And that's a great and, analogy. So that, that's my best guess at the moment, but I'm I like not very confident in that guess. <laughs> I like where you're headed with it, at least. It's so poetic. We got to wrap up. It's Andrew Newberg. The book is called The Rabbi's Brain, Mystics, Moderns, and the Science of Jewish Thinking. Other, other books? What are your other books in case people are interested? Sure. Uh, how Enlightenment Changes Your Brain, mm. uh, How God Changes Your Brain. And if you're interested in a more academic uh, treatise on neurotheology, I just wrote a book called Neurotheology. Oh, great. Fantastic. Well, yep. I can check that out. Uh, again, I will give you all the specifics where you can find Dr. Newberg. You can find him. Give me a second here. Uh, at Andrew Newberg and andrewnewberg.com. And uh, it really a privilege. I think I'm need to have you back to have a couple more conversations. I'd love to come back anytime. But we got we got to do free will. I think I think we're gonna have to do that. Okay, Sam, we'll do free will and consciousness. All right, fair enough. Thank you so much. <laughs> See you next time. For calling times and topics, follow the show on Twitter at Dr. Drew Podcast. That's D-R-D-R-E-W Podcast. The music from today's episode can be found on the swinging sounds of the Dr. Drew Podcast, now available on iTunes. And while you're there, don't forget to rate the show. 
The Dr. Drew Podcast is a Corolla Digital production and is produced by Chris Loxamana and Gary Smith. For more information, go to drdrew.com. All conversation and information exchanged during the participation in the Dr. Drew Podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes only. Do not confuse this with treatment or medical advice or direction. Nothing on these podcasts supplement or supersede the relationship and direction of your medical caretakers. Although Dr. Drew is a licensed physician with specialty board certifications by the American Board of Internal Medicine and the American Board of Addiction Medicine, he is not functioning as a physician in this environment. The same applies to any professionals who may appear on the podcast or drdrew.com. Thank you.